Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. roadmap for where we're going in the coming weeks. So uh, this is our last week in uh, Acts and our series on the church. Next week, we're going to be starting a series in the Gospel of John. So looking at John, going to spend a good bit of the next year in the Gospel of John, starting with John 1 next week. So really excited for that. Uh, But this week, we're wrapping up our series on the church. We've been looking at the church in the book of Acts. Uh, And we've been really like, even though it's a different context than our context, we see that the book of Acts gives us some principles for what any type of church should strive to be. So in week one, we looked at the idea that the church should be a praying church. At City on the Hill, we want to be a church that commits everything to prayer, that we pray and we seek God's empowering by his spirit to do the work that he has for us. And we believe that all the power we need as a church is there for us through the power of the Spirit as we pray. Secondly, we looked at the idea of being a gospel-centered church, that as I mentioned a few minutes ago, everything comes back to the gospel. Everything comes back to Jesus and the work of Christ for us. And so we live out of that hope and that reality. Thirdly, that we are a church community, that the church is meant to be a community of grace and love and care that embodies the teaching of Jesus. And so we want to be that as the church. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what it means to be a part of the global church. The city on a hill here in Forest Hills is not the only church in, in Boston. It's not the only church in our city, in the world, but we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. And we enter into that with people around the world, that there are people right now suffering for the sake of what they believe. We, 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 we enter into that. And then last week, we looked at what it means to be a multicultural church, that we want to be a church from all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, and being where we're situated in the city of Boston and where we're uniquely situated by the Forest Hills train station, we have the opportunity to image the kingdom of God as people come from different walks of life and backgrounds and cultures and socioeconomic statuses and ages all together as one family living out our hope in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be looking and finishing this series by looking at what it means to be a church on mission. And if you got a bulletin on the way in, your eyes might have bugged a little bit as you looked and saw that it looks like we're trying to cover 15 chapters in one sermon. It's not quite what we're doing. It feels a little bit like, have you ever gone to a steakhouse and they have that, that steak challenge where it's like, if you got to finish this steak or this burger or whatever within an hour. Um, I, I looked this up. The, the largest steak challenge in the world is at a place called the Big Texan Steak Ranch, because of course. Um, and it's a 72-ounce steak. And you have to finish a 72-ounce steak, baked potato, salad, and a roll within one hour. And I was looking at this thinking, I, I think I could do it. Um, I really am up for the challenge. But, you know, just like that steak, you don't have to eat the entire steak to know what the steak tastes like. Um, We're going to be looking at a very small portion of Scripture this morning that's going to tell us what the large chunk of the back half of Acts is all about. We're going to be looking at a few verses in Acts 13 about the church being a church on mission, ascending church, which is really setting the tone for Acts 14 through 28. That Acts 14 through 28 is the fruit of a church living faithfully on mission. And this morning we're looking at the church at Antioch, which is really a model church. 
the church in Antioch was a diverse church. We see all these diverse leaders from all parts of the world, two from Africa. We see a Greek. We see um, a, a Hellenistic Jew. We see someone who grew up a, as a Jew in, in, uh, in uh, Israel. We see a diverse group of people, these leaders who are, are, are deploying people, and they're taking the gospel to where Jesus is not yet known. And they're faithfully living out the mission that Jesus gave us. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told us to go into all nations, baptizing them, making disciples, teaching them. He tells us in Acts 1.8 that the church is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the earth. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We are the beneficiaries that people 2,000 years ago took Jesus' word seriously. They went on mission to make disciples and plant churches. And so as you get to the end of Acts, it's really not the end of the story. And we see that Acts 13, the church can be a catalyst for mission. And as, as a church that's the beneficiary of this church, we want to continue the mission because we join God on his mission. We want to see every corner of creation filled with the glory of God. And this happens when we take good news to every person that we can. We take the good news of the gospel to every person that we can because we want people to worship Jesus because Jesus is worthy. And John Piper tells us that this is the reason that we do mission. The reason we do mission, mission is not an end goal in itself. It's not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We go because there are people in places where Jesus is not known. And so we want city on a hill to be like the church at Antioch. We want to take up the mantle that was given by faithful churches of the past, and we want to be an avenue for the gospel, an avenue for the mission of God, because the last thing that I want our church to do is become a cul-de-sac for the mission, where it's simply a dead end, where it just ends with us. I want this to be extended. I want us to faithfully obey Jesus to be a church on mission. So how can City on a Hill be a church on mission? Today, we're going to look at a few ideas. Number one, we're going to look at a certain posture. We're going to look at some practices that we need to take on. And then thirdly, three practical ways that you can join God on his mission. The first is that a church on mission commits to a posture. There's a certain posture that a church on mission has to take. And the church at Antioch took on this posture because they believed that God could do incredible things among them. They had seen this. And so we're going to be jumping back to chapter 11, toward the, the end of chapter 11 a little bit. So if you have a Bible in front of you, we're going to be jumping between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 13. But we see at the beginning of this church in chapter 11, verse 19, that the way this church started was, was really interesting. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they've been scattered when Stephen was martyred. We covered this a couple of weeks ago. God providentially moved them to Antioch and they began to share the good news with other people. They began to share the good news and start small groups, and they began to, to form these, this group of people that eventually became a church. And, and even though they were moved there by persecution, God gave them a greater purpose, that God had brought them there for a reason, and they began to see God move in some incredible ways. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. They ended up going to a group of people who had not yet heard, and they responded to the gospel. 
And so through this, they began to firstly expect God to do great things. The first posture we need is a posture of expectancy. They preached the good news to Greeks, people who were not God-fearers. In other words, people who weren't sort of low-hanging fruit. People who weren't ready to hear. These were people who were hardened to the message of Jesus. These were people who did not want to go to church. They didn't like church people. They mocked church people. But these men, these men and women went and shared the good news of Jesus with those who seemed the least likely to trust Jesus. And when they did, we saw great joy happen. They were faithful to go and see those far from God be rescued by God. And they had seen this and were absolutely amazed by it. Verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It's an incredible and beautiful picture of God's grace when those who are far from God come to God. When those who are far from Jesus, who seem not likely to trust him, come to faith in Jesus. And we get to celebrate that with great joy. Last weekend, we got to celebrate two baptisms out at the lake. And I'm telling you, those were two of the most beautiful testimonies that I have ever heard. Even though the water was incredibly cold, uh, even though uh, that was was a bit of a challenge, there was was incredible joy. And when when you see this, when you see lives being changed, when you see the grace of God at work, you see people being served and being drawn towards the Lord, you begin to become expectant because you realize it's not us doing the work. It's the Spirit doing the work. It's God's power that is doing the work. And you begin to become expectant. William Carey says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. This great missionary to India says, I believe that God will do great things, therefore I will attempt to do great things. Now, you may not have come to City on a Hill to be a part of a mission. Maybe you're visiting for the first time this morning. And maybe the, the original reason that you came to church was not because you were wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself, but you were just simply searching. You're searching for hope or purpose or meaning. Maybe, maybe you come this morning because you're hurting. Maybe you're hungry for something and you can't quite put your finger on it. And I want to make, make no mistake, we're glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here because we want the church to be a place of healing. We want the church to be a place where people can find what they're looking for. And I do believe that you will find those things, but you're not just going to find those things. God will meet those needs, but he always calls you to something more. And what's beautiful about the church is that you're invited into a family where there's space to heal, where there's space to grow. But what God eventually does is he begins to use you to bless other people and send you out to do so. And we see the church at Antioch takes this posture of expectancy as they wait upon the Lord. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... They're sitting there expectantly asking God, what's next? What do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? How do you want us to live? What do you have for us? And so a spirit of expectancy is putting your yes on the table and saying, where, Lord? When, Lord? How, Lord? Who, Lord? They expected that God would use them. And so it's not just a posture of expectancy. It's a posture of willingness. We say, Lord, use me in whatever way that you want to use me. 
I, I, I need friends in my life who are spontaneous. I'm not a naturally spontaneous person. Uh, I tend to be pretty businesslike. I tend to be pretty much like, let's get stuff done. I need those Enneagram 7 people in my life. I need people who are like always up for a party. I remember being in college. You always had that one friend. It'd be 1 a.m. He's like, we're going to Waffle House. And I'm like, yes. And so I need those people in my life. I need people who are like, let's go on a road trip. I need people who are like, let's get out of our bubble and out of our comfort zone. Who are just, the answer is always yes. What if we held our hands open with that posture of willingness to simply say yes? What if we held our hands open in our city and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to serve? We held our hands open in our neighborhood and said, God, help show me where you want me to step in. We had our hands open in our daily lives and asked God, who are the people that I keep interacting with every day that you want me to be a blessing to? Who do you want me to love? Who do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to live? Where do you want me to work? Do you want me to stay? Do you want me to go? It's a posture of willingness saying, Lord, whatever your will is, let it be done. And it's clear that the church was doing this. As a church, we, we need to seek God and ask questions like, how can we bless the city? God, how can we give ourselves away? How, where do you want us to plant more churches? So it's a posture that's expectant, it's a posture that's willing, but it's also a posture that's prayerful. Look again at verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Sometimes that word worship can be translated as serve. They saw their service to the Lord was to wait upon him. That their service to the Lord was to pray to him and they were to proactively go to God. We often don't think of prayer as proactive, right? We think of prayer as a reaction. I pray when something bad happens or I pray when I need something. But prayer can also be proactive. We can go to God, again, with open, expectant, willing hands and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Asking God where he is at work, where he's moving ahead of us. Henry Blackaby says that, uh, that we look for where God is at work and we go there. And I'm not sure if there was something going on at the church at Antioch. They, they saw a need or just that God had been stirring in them in a unique way. But they prayed with open hands and said, God, what do you have for us? And it's clear that what they were doing proactively was allowing prayer to drive their decisions. They were praying, Lord, put something on our heart. Put a mission on our heart. Put a burden on our hearts. Give us direction and clarity, help us make this decision. And if I'm honest, that's not often how I make decisions. Often the way we make decisions, and just, just fill the ouch if this is you, is we, we make a decision and then we ask God to bless it. Here's my decision. Now, God, would you please bless it? What if we inverted that and said, God, what do you want me to do? I want to seek your direction first. Instead of you changing my circumstances, God, maybe you're going to change my heart and send me on mission with you. As he stirs, it's clear this is how they allowed prayer to drive their decisions. So a posture that's expectant, a posture that's willing, a posture that's prayerful, but lastly, a posture that's dependent. How do we see this? It's because they were fasting. The early church made a practice of fasting every Wednesday and every Friday. Now, for some of us, that's not a reality for a multitude of reasons. And I would not say that fasting is for everyone, at least from food. Some maybe a history of you know, eating disorders, maybe some health issues. You need to be thoughtful about that. 
But there are other ways that we can fast. So maybe you can't fast from food. Maybe it's media. Maybe it's your phone. We, we practice this every Lent. Uh, we take a week as a church, and we have dedicated days where we fast from different things. And, and so maybe for you, it's your phone, and you just realize the first thing you do in the morning is you grab your cell phone. The first thing you do when you're bored is you grab your cell phone. You feel your thumb just twitching like this all the time. Maybe you need to change your desires Fasting trains our desires to look away from other things to numb us and satisfy us, to look to Jesus to satisfy us alone. And it's a cry of dependency. They were fasting, saying, Lord, we need you. We need your direction. And it's asking from a posture that says, God, I can't do it. But you can. I'm not wise enough, but you are. This may be confusing to me, but it's clear to you. And have you ever had those types of prayers where you enter in with dependency, saying, God, only you can help me? And what you find when you enter into prayer with that type of dependency is the Lord is faithful to meet you. Psalm 30, 11, 12 says, 11 and 12 says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That we start in a place of mourning and it comes to dancing. We go from a place of sackcloth that leads to great joy. From a place of dependency. We've seen God come through, but won't he do it again? I've seen God come through in so many ways for our church this year. As, as I prayed for our church and asked God, God, bring us more men. God, bring, help our men really take ownership of what you're doing in our church, who, who build community together. I prayed this over leaders. As last fall, like my wife and I were leading two community groups, and I will never do that again. Um, I was like, God, we need more leaders I prayed for salvations this year and seeing God bring people to faith. And so we enter in with a posture of expectancy, willingness, prayerfulness, and dependency. And as the church of Antioch did this, they began to sense by the Spirit telling them, set apart for the, this is verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In the same way, are, are you entering into prayer with that type of expectancy, willingness, prayerfulness, and dependency? What would you pray for if you did? Would you be praying for maybe some purpose or direction? Is there a person or relationship that you would pray for? Is there, is there something you've lost hope in or a problem that you just can't seem to overcome? Would you enter into that with that posture? For City on a Hill, I, I never want us to be a church that simply settles. I never want us to be a church that simply settles for survival. I want us to be a church that's praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I also be a church that's praying our vision statement to see every, culture, every person from every culture experience the gospel. A vision that we cannot reach on our own, but that God can reach in his power. So will you, will you take on that posture with me? So a church on mission commits to a posture, but a church on mission also commits to certain practices. The church at Antioch, there's something abnormal happening here. There's something special happening here. You see this down in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So something was going on in such a crazy way that they're like, man, we got we to gotta see what's going on down there. And so they, they send Barnabas. And it feels a little bit like when they send the regional manager in to see what's, what wildness is going on at the warehouse. Like, he's not going there to stifle it. He, he's going there to increase it. 
there's a fervor that's happening here, a spiritual fervor, and it's a little bit like when you have rushing water. If you have rushing water, there, there are two things you can do with it. You can either stop it by putting a dam in place, or you can channel it for power. And they send Barnabas because there is no better person in the world to send than Barnabas because Barnabas, his name means the son of encouragement. You have to be a really nice guy to be called the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. This is the guy you want on this. Everybody likes Barnabas. And if anybody could take this new spiritual fervor and direct them towards godliness to amplify and increase what God is doing there, it is Barnabas. It says in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, don't get caught up in the experience. Don't get caught up in the fervor of what's going on. Let's keep our eyes focused on what matters most. And as he does this, he's able to lead the church in such a way that more people experience it, that it's not just about us having a good time and us experiencing this moment of, of where our community groups are warm and our Bible studies are warm and, and where we're seeing personal change, but other people begin to experience it as well. It says in verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And as this is happening, the work gets bigger than Barnabas can handle. He's like, man, I'm only so gifted. So he calls in the best teacher that he knows. Verse 25, so Barnabas sent to Tarsus to look for Saul. He says, man, I need your help. I need you to help me figure out what's going on here. We got to instill some practices to help the church continue on mission. And we see from verse 26 exactly what the first practice is. And that's that the church on mission makes disciples. Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In the Great Commission, Jesus did not say, go and make converts. He said, go and make disciples. Don't just make people who believe a certain set of ideas, but take people whose lives have been turned upside down to love like Jesus loves, to live like Jesus lives, to serve like Jesus lives, and to relate to the Father like Jesus does. And so there are two questions when it comes to making disciples. Number one is, what is a made disciple? In other words, what is, what's our vision for what a disciple looks like? And then secondly, how do we make disciples? The first is, is how do we make disciples? Or what, what is a made disciple? So we have some discipleship guides in the back that we're going to refine some of the language on, on to make some of this clear, but I, I encourage you to grab one and give some vision for this, but also ways we enter into this. It's just four ideas of what we really want disciples to look like. First is that they're Jesus-dependent, joyfully present, holistically healthy, and radically generous. And I think if we were to become those four things as followers of Jesus, we would look like Jesus that we would be God-dependent, Jesus-dependent. People who don't look to our own strength, who don't look to our own goodness, but look to the goodness and the strength of Jesus. And every single one of us needs that. We're all growing up to look like Jesus. That we would be joyfully present. Look, there should be no happier people on earth than people who've known the forgiveness of Jesus. Our sin's been taken away. Our guilt's been taken away. Our shame has been covered. That doesn't mean that we always show our happiness, but we know where our joy comes from, that we can even have joy in tough circumstances, and that we can be present with each other, expressing that joy to each other. 
Thirdly, that we'd be holistically healthy, that we would see health, be healthy in every area of our lives, that God would be working these things out to make us whole people, spiritually, emotionally. And that we would be radically generous because we see in the cross that Jesus showed the radical generosity of God that he gave his life for us. What does it look like for us to be radically generous people who give up our time and our talent and our treasure so that others might know him? And the how we do this is real simple. It's just through personal renewal. It's taking up God's word and reading it. It's prayer. It's time alone with God in silence and solitude and Sabbath where we just sit before the Lord and rest in his grace. It's times of fasting and feasting. And we do these things together as the church. All these elements come together as we gather together on a Sunday. We sit under God's word. We pray We have moments of reflection, and we even come to the table, which we'll do in a little bit, and we feast on Jesus. We do these things together, and and there's a call here in discipleship that's follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, follow me as I I follow after Christ, because Jesus' vision for discipleship was apprenticeship. That as we're walking along in life, we're looking to others who are following Jesus, because we're all going to Jesus together. And what happens is, is we change and we become disciples in relationship. That's why community group is so important. And some of this is just simply caught. You, you hang around people long enough, you start taking up the things that they say, start doing the things that they do. You know, I was just down in Alabama with family and friends a couple weeks ago, and my southern accent just started to slowly creep back in a little more and more. Um, the more you hang around people, the more you become like them. But also, it's through intentional time where we're taught how to follow Jesus. And so are, are you discipling someone and are you being discipled? I want every person in our church to be discipling someone and being discipled at some point. So we make disciples, but also a church on mission engages in mercy and justice. Uh, look at verse 27 through 29. Uh, the, we see in verse 27, now in these days, this is chapter 11, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so there's, these prophets come and they tell of, of a day coming when a, a real need is going to happen that the church can address. There's this real need that's going to occur. So the, this, the disciples, they determine in verse 29, so the disciples, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They saw a need and they stepped up and met that need. And and it says that everyone as they have ability. Now look, everybody in this room is at a different place. You're in a different season of life, different place financially, your ability, your maturity, but every single one of us can play a part in serving other people. For some of you are in a season of life where, man, you've got, you've got little kids and it's just tough. Bring them along with you to do some things. So some are single and you have, a, you have a little more flexibility in time. Some of you are a little further along in life and, and you have a little more money that you can give towards something. Some of you are like, man, I'm just trying to make it through grad school. I've got nothing. I've got, I got student loans. This is a challenge. Some of you, is, you're like, man, I, I'm, I'm just... Barely a Christian. I just became a Christian. We're at different levels of maturity, but it's determining how can I step in and be a part of this. But that's why it's important that we do this together as the church. At the end of verse 26, I don't think it's a coincidence 
that it talks about at Antioch, the disciples were the first to be called Christians because they reflected it and lived it out in the way that they served other people. We come together, and so at City in a Hill, we have a couple of ways we try to address this, a couple of handles we want to give you just to give you something to do. Because sometimes we hear, man, we should serve the poor and we should help out, but we just don't know what to do. So the two ways we do this as a church are through our partnership at English High School and through our partnership with the High Park Department of Children and Families. Now, these are not the only two ways that are worthy, and I encourage you to do other things. But as a church, we want to be narrow and not wide. And so we want to give you some tangible ways to address poverty and to mend brokenness. But God also might be opening your eyes to what you're seeing around you. Who is God bringing into your life? What is God breaking your heart for? So a church on mission does mercy and justice ministry. Second, or thirdly, a church on mission plants churches. City on a Hill is the product of church planting. We exist because someone was faithful to plant us and someone was faithful to plant that church. And you could track that all the way back to Acts chapter 13. And so the rest of the story, Acts 14 through 28, is a story of church planting. Saul and Barnabas were faithful to go and they had the same pattern everywhere they went. They would go into a city, they would find other uh, people who were sympathetic to their message. They go to the synagogue. They kind of gather a core group up. Uh, They would tell people about Jesus and then they would raise up and install leaders. And they did this from place to place. And so Saul and Barnabas in different iterations did this on three different journeys over 13 years. They traveled traveled 7,000 miles and planted 14 churches. That's unbelievable. It's absolutely remarkable. And if we look at church history, they're not the only ones. All the other apostles were church planters. They planted in places like Jerusalem and as far away as India, Ethiopia, all across the world. There are plenty of people mentioned in the Bible who went not as church planters, but as part of church planting teams. And so we, like the church of Antioch, want to be a church that plants churches. And we pray expectantly for that. And we want to plant churches around our city so that more and more people know Jesus. Now, the question might be, well, why don't you just grow this church to be the biggest church possible? I mean, it seems like the bigger light you build, the more light it shows. Well, that just think about the physics of that. If we were to put one giant light in the center of this room, there are going to be a lot of spots in this room that, that have darkness, a lot of corners. It would be really bright in the middle, but all these other parts of a room are not going to be covered by light. But by putting smaller lights in strategic places in this room, the entire room gets lit up. What if we were to put strategic lights, strategic outposts all across greater Boston so that more and more people can experience Jesus? That's why we plant churches. Now, I don't mean me. I'm I'm not going anywhere. Praying, I'm not going anywhere. Um, But if we make disciples and raise up leaders and equip them, we send them to plant more churches. As we wrap up, I just want to give you three practical ways that you can join God's mission. Number one is we stay. Now, that seems like a really weird thing to say after everything I just said. We stay for the mission. It it seems odd. I mean, there's all this going talk in Acts. Why would some stay? Well, if you look at Acts 13, 1 through 3, only Saul and Barnabas go. We see Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, others who stayed because there are some that need to stay. They stay behind because they be- Antioch became a serving and sending base to equip, support, and sustain the mission. It takes some who are just going to stay. And so I want to challenge you in this. Consider staying in Boston for a while. Now, you might be here for a program. 
You might be here for a job. You might be thinking about going somewhere else. You're like, man, as soon as I get done, I'm going back home, or I've got this dream city in mind. I want to go to that place. But what if you were to pray, like we talked out at the beginning, with expectancy, willingness, and dependency? What if God wants you to stay and be a part of what he is doing through our church? We can recover what Duke Kwan calls a theology of place. And he mentions in this book, he mentions an, an environmental policy analyst named Alan Durning. And Durning was describing this interaction he was having with a Filipino woman, Filipino tribeswoman. And she said to him, she said, tell me about your place. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Like America? And she's like, no, like your city, your home. Tell me about your place. And what he began to realize was he couldn't tell her anything about his place because he failed to love where he lived. He couldn't. And when he began to realize, this, this, this is the quote that floored me. He said, he realized that in America, we have careers, not places. We have jobs, not locations. What if we just love the place we were in? Boston, as a church, is our mission field. It's our place to love, our place to serve, our place to make better. What if we just simply committed to be here? My prayer for the next couple of years is that God would give us 50 people who would say, I'm in it. I'm for Boston. I'm staying because we can be a steady presence in a changing city. So I challenge you to consider that. But also by sending, some will go, and that's good. Saul and Barnabas are set apart. Verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Some people are going to be sent just providentially because of a job or family. Others are going to intentionally go. And so how do you know that God is sending you? He begins to work in your hearts. He begins to give you a burden for a place or for a people. It usually isn't when you're disgruntled or when you're bored or, or when you just get the adventure itch that you're trying to scratch. And so we want to be a church that sends well because we know that God is going to send people. We want to be a little bit like an aircraft carrier. Some people are going to touch down, we're going to help them fuel up, and they're going to be gone again. And so in 2021, we set a five-year vision as a church that we wanted to be a church that was committed to four M's, maturity, mercy and justice, multi-ethnicity, and multiplication. And on that multiplication piece, we said we wanted to send our first mission team in 2023, which we were able to do this year, which we're super excited about, sent a team of five to Iceland. They had a great time. And then we said by 2025, we wanted to send either our first church planner or intentional missionary. And so we actually have that opportunity early, which is amazing. God always does this. And as you do this, God always ends up like sending your best, right? So I want to invite Becca up. Um, Becca has an opportunity to to go, not necessarily long-term, but sort of midterm. So you will see her again. Some of you just gasped if you haven't heard the story yet. Um, Becca is going to spend around six months doing something called Mercy Shift. So I'm going to let Becca explain all that. Um, Um, So I'm going to be joining Mercy Ships. If you haven't heard, it's essentially a ship they converted into a hospital. And it serves um, mostly, started in Western Africa and now is serving a lot of coastal cities around the world. Um, I'll be, they, the ship goes to a different country about every year and stays there for 10 months. Um, so I'll be joining um, the ship uh, called the Global Mercy in Sierra Leone for six months. Yeah. And so next week, you can go ahead. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else you want to I'll take it. Next you're, week I'll go into yeah. a lot more detail yeah. about kind of how this came about. Because um, what Steen was saying was like, 
Oftentimes it's when we're antsy and things are hard that there are times where I'm like, I want to get out, I want to go or something like that in the last decade of my life. Um, but it was when things got good. And this last year has been one of the sweetest and best of my entire life when the Lord brought this desire back up. That's something I wanted to do my entire life and was like, this is actually the time to go. And now because of this church and this body, I recognize that is why. Um, and so God will give clarity when yeah. it's time. So that's, that's a little foretaste of next week. So this is like the cliffhanger. You can come back next week as we hear more and we get to center. And for those who don't know, I'm a nurse. So I'll be joining the medical yes. part of it. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, so thank you. And, and we're excited for this because we want to be a sending church and we want to send Becca well. And, and like, you know, we love Becca. She's been a faithful member of our church and served in so many ways. Um, but it's exactly what she said. God is leveraging something that she, he's, she's been equipped for, for the sake of the mission. And so we want to celebrate that as she goes and uses that. And she's not going to be the last. That, that's the beauty of the church. She's not going to be the last. And the question is, is God working in you? Is he giving you a heart for a people or a place? We want to celebrate that. And maybe you're like, man, I, I, I see that, but I'm just not ready to do it. I'm just not in a place. I would just challenge you to press in, grow, be committed to the church, and see what God does. And even if it is just simply God sending you to another place for a job or family, go intentionally to, to do the same work that you would do here. So we want to send, and we're going to celebrate this next week and lay hands on Becca and send her off well. She, she'll be here for a little bit longer. She'll leave at the end of the month, but we'll get a chance to send her out next week. The third thing you can do is sacrifice. Whether you stay or whether you go, it is a sacrifice. When you go, you leave what's familiar. You know, Becca's going to leave a job. She's going to leave an apartment. She's going to leave friends. She's going to leave a church, even though we're going to stay connected to her. As you go, you, you, you lay certain things down. But as you stay, you also commit to sacrifice. When we're committing to the long haul for Boston, it means that we're going to be people who give. We give of our time and our money to see the mission go forward. We're going to be people who serve, love, and serve the local church and serve and love our neighbors. And we make this sacrifice because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. There's an Andrew Peterson song that asks the question, is he worthy? And it asks all these questions about, the, about Jesus. And then at the end, it just simply cries, he is. He is worthy of every sacrifice that you or I could make to go or to stay, to give or to serve, because we are people who have been floored by his grace. Jamal Williams, about this text, says that we were ordinary, they were ordinary Christians changed by God who were faithful to tell their story and tell the story. A people so captivated by a God who would send his own son as a missionary to die for our sins and raise again to new life to take away the sins of the world. So the question is, is have you been captivated by Jesus? Have you been enraptured by his grace? And this morning, the, maybe for the first time, you're seeing the goodness and the grace of Jesus. You're seeing why God has a mission that he came for you. And if that's you this morning, I would love to talk with you about how to give your life to Jesus for the first time. But maybe you're, you're a follower of Jesus and you're getting a fresh vision of this. How can you be on mission in our city or around the world to extend the glory of God? Let's be a church that joins God on his mission to make his glory known so that the whole earth can see his glory, to see every person from every culture experience the gospel. Let's pray. Let's pray.